Welcome to Book Bistro, where book enthusiasts come to chat about the books they love in a warm and supportive environment. Today is Friday. June 3rd, 2022. This is Shannon, and tonight I'm here with Georgina, Stacy, and Brooke, and we are kind of changing up the mood a little bit. It's springy, summery, depending on where you live, but we are going to talk about gothic books because Georgina wanted an excuse to talk about Barbara Michaels. And you know, we, we, don't, we don't talk about gothics a lot here, so... It seemed like a great idea. So we're going to get started with the usual housekeeping information. Then Brooke will start us off, followed by Stacy, then me, and Georgina will end the round. You can find us on Twitter and on Facebook by searching Book Bistro Podcast. You can always post just on the Book Bistro timeline. Some of you have done that. I'm always so happy to see when you've published posts there. You can join our Facebook listener group where you can chat with us as well as with other podcast listeners. You can keep an eye on some of what we're reading. We usually update you each Wednesday with a look at our current reads. If you'd like to get a hold of us and social media is not really your thing, you can email us. That address is thebookbistropodcast at gmail.com. So my first book tonight is Anatomy, A Love Story by Dana Schwartz. So this book is, so our main character's name is Hazel Sinnott. And Hazel is um, about 17 years old. She lives in a kind of upper class um, home. She is set to um, like pretty much from the time they were really, really young, her and her cousin were promised to one another. So she is now realizing that soon to her sadness, um, she's going to have to think about marriage and she'll be marrying her cousin, as I said, who is a Viscount. So Hazel does not really want to get married. What she wants to do is she wants to become a surgeon. So she decides one day that she's going to dress up in her brother, her deceased brother's clothing. So um, George is her deceased brother. He had um, what they're calling the Roman, I think it's Roman pox. I think it does what they're called. So it's called Roman pox because there's these like, boils that they get on the back and it looks like when they pop, then it looks like um they were like stabbed so how Caesar was I know it's not gross I agree so (laughs) George has passed away and dealing with this Roman pox and seeing like how it's really hit the world his her dream is to like find the cure she wants to find a cure for this so she 
as I said, dresses up in her brother's clothing and she takes her brother's name. So her name, well, she kind of, so she calls herself George Hazelton. So she goes and she's doing really, really well in classes and, and things are going well. She's pretty excited about this. She's pretty tired because she's just going to school and also doing her lady sort of things. But at the same time, she's really enjoying herself. And slowly the class is like less and less people are getting, like people are getting let go for different reasons, but she's sticking with it. Until one day they have a, another lecture. Um, his name, I think it was Dr. Strain, I think, or Strange, I think his name is. He's kind of this peculiar man. Unfortunately for Hazel, she actually met him at her uncle's estate. So Uh-oh. being a surgeon, he really kind of knows people. So he's able to recognize her at the start. So he lets her kind of go along with it for the class. Um, he makes a fool of her asking questions that like really he shouldn't have asked. So she would tell them different parts where they were, but then he made her come up to the corpse and point out she he's like, okay, well, where's the gallbladder? And she's like looking and like, it's just like partly decayed corpse. It's like, um, I don't know. And so he keeps asking her questions like these and she can't find the organs that he's looking for. So he then tells her, he makes this comment about how obviously you're not that smart. You're just book smart or something like that. Kind of that kind of whole idea. Um, at the end of the class, he asks her to stay, stay behind. And she realizes that he is pretty, he probably knows who she is. So she knows if the gig is up. Um, so he kind of tells her off for making a fool of him. Um, and he tells her that like, there's no way that he's going to teach her like, yeah, you're doing well in my, in this class, but I refuse to teach somebody who is never going to ever be able to become a surgeon. So what's the point? So she takes off and she's pretty upset about this. And after some crying and getting upset and kind of thinking that she's going to give up, um, she met this boy named Jack and Jack is what's called a resurrectionist. Um, so he, a less fancy name would be a body snatcher. So he does, she um, pays Jack to get her bodies because she ends up getting to get going and talking to like the head lecturer of this club, this school. And his name is Dr. Beecham and asks him if, if I can take the test at the end, like in a couple months, like the uh, kind of like the medical test, then, and I pass, then can you like be my mentor? And then, cause I really want to become a surgeon. So he agrees and he says, that's fine, let's do it. So she sets out to discover everything she can on her own. And she knows that she needs to get, have bodies to study, but that she's also going to have to kind of find people that will, won't mind her helping them out like be kind of being their doctor in a way so she does this um her mom ends up taking her younger brother off to um their country estate because she's 
all were she's seeing that the um roman pox are coming back and she's worried that she's gonna lose percy like percy is this very spoiled boy because well the boys always they inherit everything so she treats him like he's royalty but doesn't really pay much attention to hazel so hazel pretends that she's sick and of course she's her mom ends up leaving her at their usual like their estate in um edinburgh and takes her brother away so she's able to like turn their estate she turns it into this like mini hospital where people poor people can come and get some help she just lets them know that she'll help them to the best of her ability but that she can't promise anything so she ends up learning all this so if you want to know if hazel succeeds um you will have to read anatomy a love story by dana schwartz People talk about how like atmospheric this is and how you really get that like feel of like, you know, old Scotland um, and kind of that darker, like seedier side of of medicine. Um, I've seen this on a lot of different lists. Like a lot of people compare it to like um, Frankenstein meets aliens. And I kind of get where they talk about the aliens part. Like I couldn't understand at first. I was like, oh my God, there better not be like aliens coming out bodies or something. Um, (laughs) Or something. There's like kind of like a magical, I put in quotes, magical sort of aspect um, to how, to the whole idea of what they can do with bodies and what, like what can be replaced and how it can be replaced. And that's where you meet, I guess like that's where they're getting the aliens reference from. So when Georgina said, suggested gothics, I got super excited right away. Cause I already knew that I was going to talk about one of my favorite books and I've talked about it on this podcast before. And I'm so excited that I can talk about it again. Um, I get to talk about my beloved Fairwick trilogy. I'm actually going to talk about the first book. It's The Demon Lover, the Fairwick trilogy, book one by Juliet Dart. And this book is like, I read it about once a year. I'm not one to reread many books. I, I read them. I love them. I move on. This series, though, it traps me in about once a year. I feel like I need to go back to Fairwick, New York and visit the characters there because I love them. This book is about Callie McFay, Calix, if you're being precise, that's her actual name. And Callie is looking for a position at a college or university, um, preferably in New York City because she loves living there. And she is, um, she got her doctorate and she wrote a book called The Sex Lives of Demon Lovers or something similar to that title. And so she teaches like folklore classes and classes about fairy tales and vampires and all these different things. And so she is invited for an interview at a small college in Fairwick, New York. And she goes for the interview, but it's not at all where she sees herself ending up. And she drives into this small town and everything just sort of feels, I don't know. I mean, it kind of has like a, a crumbling charm to it lots of Victorian houses. Anyway, she goes to the the college and she's, you know, she goes to the interview with, with the Dean of the college. And, you know, while she likes the Dean and she thinks the campus is rather lovely, it's not her dream because her boyfriend is finally finishing up his doctorate and is going to move home from California back to New York city as well. So Fairwick is not in her plans, 
But then that night, as she's walking back to the inn where she's staying, she sees light cast uh, reflecting off something, and she sees across the street from the inn an old house, old Victorian house, kind of down this path back in the woods. And she is instantly entranced by this fan light over the front door that has this very kind of gothic looking picture of this very handsome young man in the, in the glass. And she decides that even though she knows she feels kind of bad because she knows she's not going to take this job and she's been given the night to make up her mind and she knows she's not going to take this job, but she knows she has to see the inside of this house. And so she asks if she can get a realtor to, to let her walk around. In the morning, many things happen, including her, oh, in her dreams that night, she dreams of a shadowy man who kind of steals into her bedroom at the inn on a tide of moonlight and proceeds to do rather wicked things to her body oh. that she very much enjoys. And she, yes, and uh, certain bedroom <laughs> activities. Was that oh, it? Yeah. Did I say it right, Shannon? certain bedroom activities yeah and in the morning she goes and she looks at this house and realizes that it's the home of dahlia lamont who was the author of many gothic romances at the beginning of the 20th century and so and there is a proviso that whoever purchases the home has access to all of dolly's papers and manuscripts they just can't be taken out of the house well Callie is completely enamored with the house, with all of it, and spur of the moment decides that she has to stay and teach at Fairwick College. And thus begins her... (laughs) She learns so much about herself throughout the course of this book, and I don't want to give many spoilers. Um, She continues to have visitations in the moonlight at night by this shadowy man who continues to sort of enthrall her and you know she at some point can no longer sort of keep believing that she's just dreaming this because of how tired she is every morning and 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 other things and while she's kind of dealing with these dream visits she's also getting to know her students and getting to know the people of Fairwick and she's also falling more and more in love with just everything about the town and the college and just the environment that she's living in. This book has um, lots of just sort of atmosphere to spare. Um, this, this Victorian house just sort of is a character as is the town of Fairwick. Um, they, they add so much ambiance to the story. Um, it's a story of a very, um, confident, competent woman who learns a lot about who she is um, that she'd sort of forgotten from her childhood. It's about how she discovers all of this found family in this quirky little town. And it's about how she falls in love with a very mysterious man and solves a mystery or begins to solve a mystery that will take the entire trilogy to fully unravel. There's magic in this book. There's just it's it's there's a little bit of something for everyone it's a wonderful series i feel like it does not get enough um attention um it does not yep so 
Juliet Dark is a pseudonym for Carol Goodman. And if you like Carol Goodman's writing style, um, it, it kind of shines through that say a similar voice in this, in this trilogy with a bit more of a Gothic edge. Um, and I would say a little bit more romance than in the other Carol Goodman books that I have read. And I know that I'm just sort of rambling and saying how lovely it is, but I just don't want to give anything away because just reading it and discovering it is just such a wonderful, wonderful, delightful thing. This is The Demon Lover, The Fairwick Trilogy, book one by Juliet Dark. This book and... reminds me of um, The Shape of Night by Tess Gerritsen, where it has the oh, yeah. person visiting her at night. Oh, I wonder if it's the same that's visiting Callie in her dreams. Maybe. I don't want to say what it is. I want you to read it. This has been on my radar since pretty much since we started the podcast and you first talked about it. Um, I own it, but I have not read it yet. I need to uh, I need to do something about that. So my first book is kind of a nifty cross between Brooke's first book and Stacy's first book. Ooh. This is Madam by Phoebe Wynn. And it is like Brooke's book because it, it's set in Scotland. And it is kind of like Stacy's first book because it talks about a school and a, a teacher. So this is the story of Rose. And Rose is a young teacher who has been hired to teach at this really elite Scottish boarding school called Aubrey Hall. And it sits way up high on the cliffs in Scotland. It's very remote, very elite, and very, very mysterious. It has been 10 years since this school has hired anyone to come in. It's a very insular group of both students and faculty. And Rose is honestly very surprised that she's been hired. Not only is she hired to be a teacher, but she's hired to be a department head. Wow. And she really doesn't understand why. Wow. Like she's glad for the chance, like she needs this kind of new start. And she's always been intrigued by things that she's heard about the school, but she doesn't quite understand like why, like why they chose her. She feels like, you know, there were a lot of other candidates and something, you know, just seems like it doesn't quite add up for her. But she, of course, you know, is, is happy to teach at such an elite school and to be a department head, you know, at like the age of 26. So she starts working there and she, of course, you know, gets kind of pulled in to the culture in this school. And it's kind of hard to explain like all the things that go on here without spoiling some things that happen later in the book. But there is a very like distinct culture that exists among the staff and the students here. But as she continues to teach and continues to sort of get to know her students and her coworkers, she starts to have some questions about a former teacher who people have kind of conflicting stories about. She's starting to wonder like what, what happens to this person and is it 
somehow connected to like her own sort of presence at the school. And so she's trying to, you know, understand like what happened and how whatever it is that happened connects to her. Um, I will say that there were certain elements of this book that were tricky for me. Um, Rose is not the easiest character to sort of fall into and identify with. I found her troubling sometimes just sort of the way that she decided to go about things. Um, I didn't always understand her her thought processes, but I think one of the, the strongest elements of this book and the reason that I chose it for tonight's episode is its very creepy, mysterious atmosphere. Like it it's described as a modern Gothic. And I would say that that is like a perfect description for it. So if you like boarding school books and you're looking for something kind of creepy and you don't mind a heroine that you might sort of struggle with at times, um, this could be a good pick for you. Once again, it's Madam and it's by Phoebe Wynn. That's- I read this book a couple months ago and I, I, I ran into similar mm-hmm. issues with yes. the heroine. My first book that I'm going to talk about is um, Jane Eyre, the beloved oh. Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte. Oh, so, yeah, it's like the first gothic, like the... Yes. <laughs> yeah, speaking of creepy old buildings and creepy mm-hmm. old boarding schools. Oh, yeah. Um, yes. Jane lives with her... Jane Eyre lives with her aunt, uncle, and three cousins. And... Jane's uncle dies and her aunt decides her to send her to boarding school to get rid of her. And in boarding school, Jane is pretty miserable. And eventually Jane, Jane leaves and applies as a governess to, for Mr. Rochester. Of course. And in Thornton Hall and she really decides that, you know, he's, he's crotchety, he's mean, he's, but once she starts spending time with him, she starts to have different feelings and Jane has to eventually decide after she discovers his secret whether she wants to stay or or leave his position forever. And for those of you who haven't read Jane Eyre, I I don't want to give too much away by by saying what she decides in the end. Um, But this is Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte. This is like the original <sighs> gothic. Like gothic. I don't read a lot of classics. Um, I tend not to like them. I'm just not that kind of reader. But I will always and forever love Jane Eyre. Well, I have to say know? a couple things about Jane Eyre because I read this book when I was 13, which I don't know. That's when I read it for I the first 15. time. And I... 
get introduced to Jamie. Yeah. I mean, and for me, like, first of all, it's the first book where I connected to a heroine so much and was so invested in her story that when she's pulling away from Thornfield Hall, um, after making her decision, I was like in tears and I was horrified. I'm like, why, why is this happening to me? Like, I don't like, I'm not an emotional person. I was very uncomfortable. I did not like people seeing tears. Like, and then I had to read it. I was, um, we had to do, it was, uh, it was the last year I, uh, we were in like the reading class. They called it reading still, I think, but you know, like English, whatever. And it was reading week. And so I was reading it in class, trying not to cry. And I remember being at home, like just, being so devastated for Jane and like, cause her, her pain felt so real to me. Like I just really empathized with her in that moment, but also I blame Jane Eyre and I blame Edward Rochester for my lifelong obsession with the tortured broody, like unavailable <laughs> gothic. Oh, yeah. you know? Like how dare yeah. she? Like, I mean, seriously, back in the time of such repressed women, how did she write something like Edward Rochester that like never left me in my whole life? Um, and just like that book to me, like with all the, you know, the, the secrecy around Thornfield Hall and like, you know, what's happening? What is Mrs. Poole's role in all of this? Like what, you know, what is happening upstairs where Jane's not supposed to go? Why does she hear those noises? Like, what do people know about Mr. Rochester that Jane doesn't know? Like, and to me, all that was so moody and atmospheric. And I just, I loved it so, so, so much. And I just, I cannot imagine there are many people in the world that haven't read Jane Eyre, but So my next book tonight is The Stranger Behind You by Carol Goodman. Yes. Ah, yes. So our main character's name is Joan. She is a journalist. Um, She writes for a magazine. She has taken three years to put together an article that kind of like an expose about a boss that she had at the Times. Um, she, she herself, I don't think ran into, um, sexual harassment with him, but she decided that she needed to stick up for a fellow coworker that he, that the boss was, um, his name is Casper Osmond. Um, so Casper Osmond. No, that's what I was thinking. And then I thought it was funny. <laughs> but I was laughing. like, I don't know any real people named Casper, like only the ghost. I know, like that must be very pompous. I did know I, one. I like, did you really? You did? That's awesome. Yes. So um, Casper is kind of a sleazy guy. Um, he forced one of his coworkers, his staff, sorry, because he's the boss, one of his staff to do some things that she did not want to do. And Joan finds out about this and he, the staff themselves is kind of, she's kind of scared because she's not very high up in the company and she really needs this job. But Joan, she feels that there's other women that he's probably done this to. And so she goes and she speaks to HR and the um, staff member that he assaulted as well as Joan are let go from the Times. So Joan goes and she's now working for this other magazine and her boss has kind of given her the space to write this article while also um, filling in for fashion in his magazine because she likes writing about fashion, but it's not like where her heart is. So she's able to do that to kind of 
get her ends meet her money but at the same time she's building this big exclusive so she the night before it's to go live um she's at a party and she's kind of getting the congratulations that it's all done it's ready it looks great it's going to be awesome so it's released while they're at the party and then everybody in the party obviously starts getting um like alerts and Mm. people start talking because well he's a pretty popular guy and all these things are being said and yeah it's all these whispers happening so she's kind of done with this she doesn't want to be at the party anymore and she decides to walk home so she's walking home and she's heading home she gets home and she doesn't she'd been drinking a bit so she's not really paying attention to her surroundings and she gets brutally attacked. Cool. So she wakes up. She's feeling like crap because she's pretty sure she's got a really bad concussion. Her eyes are all blurry and she can't really focus and she can't really sit up. But she's, she knows she's really scared. She wants to get out of there. So she ends up looking at some places and she moves to this place that used to be like an old it's called so it's called the reformatory and it it used to be a um what's it called like a madeline oh a magdalene laundry a magdalene laundry so it used to be a magdalene laundry where women went that were kind of like questionable women um women that kind of society wanted to hide so she ends up looking at an apartment and she falls in love with it. It's just very open, very just the history behind the building really intrigues her. Cause as I said, she's a journalist and it's very secure building. Like there's um, cards that you use to get in and there's a security guard and she just feels really that she's going to be safe. So she moves in and she meets her neighbor across the hall um she's been told that there's an old, older lady that lives across the hall so this 90 something year old woman just randomly walks into her apartment like with her Ooh. keys so like the woman had keys to her apartment so she's kind of confused Ooh. but she's not really scared because like this 90 something year old woman so she invites her in and her name is Lillian and Lillian and her start talking And she starts learning about Lillian's story. So Lillian, back in the day, um, she lived, she was in kind of a poor family, but she knew she wanted to be something. So she kept working hard and she did all this work and she ends up getting mixed up with, um, with the mob, like the mob. And it's not really to any, it's not really her fault. Like her friend kind of gets her mixed up into it. Um, her friend Rose is kind of like a waitress, um, escort, something like that at one of their businesses and her and Lillian, they look a lot alike. So Rose needs to do something else somewhere else. So she asks Lillian to kind of go in and do take her oh. job for the, for a, for a couple nights. And so she gets to end up wrapped into this whole mob situation and over the course of the book we learn more and more about Lillian's story and about some of the things that happen so it kind of links to that whole um, me too movement 
that was going on uh, yes. um, here, uh. but it's also going on in both Joe Jones world, but also in um, Lillian back in Lillian's time. So as far as she understands, Lillian's lived at this building since like the 1940s when oh. she, um, the district, I think the assistant district attorney um, puts her in this building just to hide her from the mob because the mob people have gotten, are like after her. And so she's hiding. And that's all like, that's all I want to tell you for that story. Cause I don't want to give you much of hers away. But Joan, she's decided that she's going to now write a book. And so by writing this book, she is going to talk about some of the situations of this case that weren't, she wasn't able to do with her article. Because everyone says that she should really write a book because she feel, they feel like there's got to be more to this whole story. Um, we also get some, we get to meet Casper's wife, sorry, Melissa and Joanne, their li- their Jones, right? Their lives start intertwining. And I'm going to leave it there. But like this building was so neat because like there was this back entrance where you could walk and it was like, it kind of gave me the idea of walking like in an old subway station. You know how there's all those like metal stairways and Mm -hmm. very like all stone walls and kind of like dirty and like you got like whatever. It's not very atmospheric. And like just even the building itself with this old building and the history behind it. And like she went down into the basement one time and she could smell like the resin, like she could still smell um, soap. So like that would be where the laundries were and stuff like that. So I just really liked this book. So this is The Stranger Behind You by Carol Goodman. I love Carol Goodman. The Lake of Dead Languages is like one of my very favorite books by her. So my second book this evening, I have to talk about because I loved it so. And when I read it again this week, just to remind myself of some of the, some of the elements of it, I loved it just as much. That is Silence for the Dead by Simone St. James. This book takes place in 1919. I'm sorry. Yes, 1919. And our intrepid heroine is Miss Kitty Weeks. And Miss Kitty Weeks is living a lie. A big fat lie. She needs to get out of London. She is uh, has been let go from her factory job. She's quite unsure what she's going to do. And so when she hears that her roommates, a friend of her roommates just walked away from a nursing job without even, you know, like going and saying she wasn't going to show up or anything to get married, Miss Kitty Weeks decides that despite the fact that she's actually had like no nursing training whatsoever, she's going to apply (laughs) to work at this hospital. It's called Portis House. And it was a hospital specifically for soldiers who came home from the Great War. And back then they would have called it shell-shocked soldiers. So now we know that it's PTSD. And Miss Kitty Weeks decides that, you know, once she gets the job, she's just going to go and brazen it out. Because that's what she's done for the last several years of her life. She just brazens her way through whatever is happening. And so she is, she goes to the remote area where Porter's house is. 
And she's driven across this narrow stone bridge to this sort of place that all is around it is like the the moors and the you know just some scrublands and then this big big gothic-y old house which actually isn't very old it was only built 20 years before and when the family moved in the dead of night it was turned into a hospital for shell-shocked soldiers so miss kitty weeks goes in on her first day and she's brazing it out with the headmistress of the nurses and who right away just basically tells her i know you're not a nurse but you know <laughs> we're our staffing we're having um some staffing issues we lost a nurse a few weeks ago and so you're just gonna do whatever i tell you she's like okay and so she on her first night goes to um assist with um dinner for the men and she's standing in the dining room when all of a sudden one of the men just gets this very like intense nosebleed there's lots of comments back and forth there's someone grabbing her through her copious voluminous nurse's uniform that she's wearing and she just feels like oh my god i've made like the biggest mistake what am i doing here and the the nurse in charge has her doing things like scrubbing this horrifying bathroom in the men's wing of the house where like black mold is like gushing up out of the drains and she's hearing like thumping in the walls and the whole time she's in there scrubbing this bathroom for all she is worth she just feels like something is waking up and it is coming to get her and she's petrified by it she's trying to you know offer some empathy toward these soldiers who are there being cared for but yet she's sort of like detached from it all she's like i don't even know what i'm doing you know luckily the first night when the guy had the nose bleach she knew how to handle that but then you know that's that's kind of like the end of her skill set there's two other nurses they share 24-hour shifts one week a month the nurse works the night shifts so at first kitty's working days she's just basically there to oversee things folding sheets and you know, like assisting like with with supper trays for the soldier who's in the infirmary. And, you know, things are going okay, but she's been told she has to stay away from patient 16. She's like, okay, like he's in his room. She doesn't have clearance. But Kitty Weeks has a bit of an issue in that when someone tells her not to do something, she wants to question why. And so she tells a different nurse, one day during a bunch of chaos that she actually has the clearance to go and assist patient 16. And when she walks into his room, she discovers brave Jack Yates sitting on the window seat. Brave Jack Yates provided hope to many and, you know, was the voice of the war and the voice that encouraged young men to fight and talked about how brave everyone was and who single-handedly saved a bunch of men during a battle. And now he's here in Portis House, hiding away in a room. And Kitty is furious. Oh, is she furious? How dare brave Jack be here in this place of madmen? How dare he? He's brave Jack Yates. So for the first like little while in this book, it's sort of like her getting acclimated and feeling creepy now and then, and, you know, kind of like wondering what's happening in this big, 
house that seems like it's crumbling more than it should for only being, you know, built 20 years ago. And she's also kind of like wondering what the heck happened to this family that just sort of like up and vanished, like from this house, like no one saw them leave, nothing. And so she wants to solve that mystery because obviously, you know, she just can't leave things alone. Well, then Kitty gets her first week of night shifts and everything changes. The house is, huh, I'll try to say this in a G-rated way. The house is incredibly spooky at night. She sees like a pale shirtless man walking down the stairwell. But when she goes to follow him, it gets like icy cold and she grows petrified. There's all the men, all the soldiers are having like the same nightmare. They all wake up screaming. It's just a horrifying, terrifying place to be. The doctors that come to Portis house once a week don't really seem to give a shit about the men. If I'm being quite honest, they just actually are doodling in their notebooks during group sessions and not really caring. It's more to them about being paid. It's not about actually helping to provide any relief. If anyone reports about nightmares that these men are having, they get punished. They get um, like visiting rights withheld or letters withheld, things like that. Anyway, all this is going on. Kitty's feeling very frazzled, but she cannot stay away from Jack Yates. She just can't. She's drawn to him. She keeps sneaking into his room, which to me <laughs> was quite irritating. I'm like, you're a, supposed to be a nurse, even though you're not. And so leave this poor man alone. I kept thinking in the beginning. Anyway, things escalate rather dramatically. And all of the ghosts that live in Portis house begin making their presence known. And all of the mysteries culminate and are solved in a very frightening and explosive night at Portis house in the midst of a deluge and an outbreak of influenza. So this book is amazing. I love it. I love Simone St. James. She writes some really freaky ghosts. Um, I actually slept with my lights on, even though I'm totally blind the night that I read this because I was just positive that um, the, the pale shirtless man was going to just be standing by me if I woke up. So, um, and I, I enjoyed the romantic elements in this book. I enjoyed all the mysteries of what happened to the original family who lived in the house. It's just a really well done gothic with all of the elements that make a gothic a great gothic. This again is Silence for the Dead by Simone St. James. And I know Shannon's going to rush out and read it because she loves ghosts so much. I may actually read this. This sounds really good. Oh, you know what? If you like... Um, like her, I really love, especially her twenties era um, books that take place. She writes these amazing books right after World War One, um, that are all very gothic and atmospheric and creepy as creepy can be. And um, the other one, I I can't ever read again because it frightened me so much. It was The Haunting of Maddie Claire, and that's also very gothic and has like it was like a perfect book for me. But I just I can't. I was very frightened by it. All right, so my second book tonight is The Corpse Queen. This is the debut novel by Heather Herrmann. I loved this so, so much. I was so excited when I saw the blurb for it. I waited and waited and my library bought it for me and I was so happy. Well, they didn't buy it for me, I guess, but I recommended it and they bought it and I was the first one on the hold list and it was a momentous day um, last fall. Anyway. 
So this takes us to 1850s Philadelphia, and we meet Molly. Molly's best friend has just died under mysterious circumstances, and she wants to figure out what happened to her. But before she can do that, she's told that she has to go live with her aunt. Now, as far as Molly knows, she doesn't have an aunt. So how is this possible? She figures that because she's an orphan, that someone was able to donate to the orphanage and basically claim to be her aunt and get her as kind of like free labor. But she doesn't really have a lot of options. She's 17. Pretty soon she'll have to leave the orphanage anyway. And so she figures like if this person says they're her aunt, like that's fine. You know, she'll do what they want her to do for a while and hopefully then be able to leave and do something better. So she meets her quote, aunt, unquote, and this is Ava. Ava is a very wealthy, secretive woman, and she has a very specific reason for wanting Molly to live, you know, live and work with her. And it is that she has this very successful business as a grave robber or a resurrectionist, as we learned from Brooke's first book. And she needs someone to kind of help her out with this and procure the bodies. Well, Molly does not necessarily think this is a great idea. Um, And I, I can't say that I blame her. Like, first of all, police are not big fans of people doing this. So it puts her in a lot of like physical danger as well as just the trouble with the law. But as she starts to kind of learn the ins and outs of grave robbing, I'm not sure um, exactly like how complicated it it was, but um, I just know I don't want to do it. She (laughs) starts to wonder, like, why are there so many bodies of young women that resemble the way her friend Kitty had died? So she starts sort of investigating this at the same time that she's learning to become a skilled grave robber. And so she gets herself kind of enmeshed in the plans of a murderer. Um, This is another one of those like very, very atmospheric books. Um, it's, It's not that like Philadelphia itself is, is creepy, but it's the kind of dark like night work uh, that that she does it's you know creeping around when most people are asleep it's meeting these very mysterious people who work in this industry Um, and she knows that a lot of these people have have secrets and she's trying to kind of uncover them and understand who is responsible for the death of all of these women. Um, this is often compared to Carrie Maniscalco's Stalking Jack the Ripper. And I found it like a halfway fair comparison. Um, the kind of you know grave robbing medical aspect, I think jives really well with Maniscalco, but we're lacking some of the like supernatural stuff that you find in Stalking Jack the Ripper. This is 
a young adult kind of gothic mystery um, that shows us a period of history, at least in this aspect that I, I didn't know a lot about. Um, I've read, what is it, The Bone Garden by Tess Gerritsen that talks about grave robbing and how like medical schools, you know, wanted wanted bodies procured in this way, but it wasn't something that I knew a lot about. So I was excited to read this and it was a phenomenal debut. Once again, it is The Corpse Queen by Heather Herrmann. I have this. That sounds book. really good. This is a comparison with to Anatomy, uh, the Danish yeah, for book sure. that you talked about. Um, so yeah, I think you'd like it. My second book that I'm going to talk about is Interview with a Vampire by Anne Rice. This is a very, um, this to me, this book seems you either love this book or you hate this book. I have never read um, this book. Me either. <laughs> or you've I never it. read it. <laughs> um, lord, there, he's a lord, Louis, I I don't remember his last name at the moment. Um, he is depressed and wants to kill himself when he meets um, the vampire Lestat, and Lestat convinces him to join him on the other on the undead side. So they have apparently centuries before he decides that he wants to break away because Lestat that is kind of mm, gruesome, kind of mean, <laughs> loving, <laughs> kind of sadistic. And oh. so then he, when he realizes that he's going to leave, he makes it, he drinks, he drinks from a child turning her, which oh. forces Louis to stay and take care of the child but then which the little girl is named Claudia and when Louis and Claudia decide to break away from Lestat and see if they can find other vampires they do but then discover that all is not what it seems and maybe they might be better off with the devil you know oh. this is interview with a vampire by Anne Rice so is this set like in New Orleans? This like, is other stuff. Yes. Okay. Yes. Because New Orleans, I think, is like the perfect kind of gothic city. And yes. she does sure. it really, really well. Like for a long time, I wanted a house in the Garden District in New Orleans. No way I could I afford do. such a thing. <laughs> but um, and you all be swept away by the hurricanes. The truth. <laughs> and they're Shannon being practical. <laughs> and the vampires. Uh -huh. Exactly. So my last book tonight is A Lullaby for Witches by Hester Fox. Oh. oh. This one looks interesting to me. It was interesting. Um, for me, just the supernatural aspect was a bit much for me, but if that's something you like, then I would definitely, it's something that is, it's good. It's, it's pretty good. 
Um, so our main character's name is Augusta. And when we start the book, she is, she's like the tour guide at an old prison, which I think is so fascinating. Um, so her degree is like in museum curation. Like she is very, very interested in old things. So she is kind of like in a bit of a slump. Um, she's getting bored by her job. She's worked there for about three or four years. Um, her love life is kind of going nowhere. Um, she's living with her boyfriend who lives with her, his brother. So you can only imagine what kind of life that is. Um, when she comes home from work, for example, one night, her boyfriend is playing video games with his brother on the couch. And like, that's, so you would think like this must be like a college age people, but no, they're like, they're definitely somewhere in their mid to late twenties, maybe even thirties. So they're not, they're not, they're not kids. So I can see where she's coming from. So she learns about this job um, at Harlow House. And it's an old estate um, that was turned into a museum. So she is so excited about this. And she doesn't really think she's going to get it because she hasn't really been working in the field for long enough is what she's thinking so to get something like this is like her dream dream absolute dream job so she decides to apply anyway um her friends help her out like fix things here and whatever and she sends it in and she gets an interview and she is so excited so she goes to this house and it's an old georgia mansion um And they describe like the inside, like this dark wood. And it just sounds gorgeous. Like I would love to live there. So she gets the job and her job is to put together um, a new exhibit and also to go through some of the things that they have in storage that haven't been cataloged. And another part of her job is also to look at the condition of things and just to say what's happening. So as she's doing all this investigation into some of the stuff in storage, she discovers that the Harlows had a daughter. Her name is Margaret, Margaret Harlow. And she doesn't get really talked about much. But there's this painting um, of her on one of the floors in the museum. And that's really about all that people know is her name and then possibly like they're guessing that's the painting of her they're not totally sure who else it could be because at the time that it would have been painted the like the mother so the matriarch of the family would be would have been too old to look that way so they're pretty sure that's who it is so she kind of like is feeling like well who is she like why is she not talked about If she's like their only daughter, you would think that would be something special to them. But for some reason, she's kind of gotten erased in history. And then there's this whole paranormal kind of spooky atmosphere where she starts having these like hallucinations or what she feels are hallucinations. And she's like, she'll be in say like the staff kitchen. And then it turns into like, she's standing in this old, gas lit kitchen 
Um, and she gets to see things in a different light from back probably about 150 years or so ago. And so she's not really sure what's going on. She's a little bit worried about this because she's like, did I not eat enough? So that's what she's kind of thinking at first, but as things keep going and she's getting more and more details and she's realizing that she's kind of like learning things about this person that she's never really known. So she's kind of like wondering like what's going on. And she's meeting some of her coworkers and there's a bit of a romance, but it's not like a lot of romance. It's more of just like a budding relationship. Um, we get to meet his parents who live in Pale Harbor, which is actually one of Hester Fox's other books oh, that yes, I've actually Leo. read of hers. Yeah, yeah Pale Harbor. Heard, it was really neat meeting Leo's family. They're just amazing family. So they walk in and the, the family is just like, hugging her and just totally welcoming and they're dressed all kind of hippie-ish and she's like oh Leo your parents are hippie he's like yeah I know and he's and they're just such great people and she's just so happy because this is not a kind of the family that she has because her relationship with her mom is very tense because her when her dad died her mom just completely stopped talking about him so the, her mom and dad were split up and she never really knew why they split really. Like she kind of knew they weren't getting along, but she didn't really know the intricate stories of their, why they, why they split. And it really bothers her that her mom never wants to talk about it. So then that kind of puts a strain on her, her relationship with her mom. As she does investigations, we learn that there's a, there's a connection between her and this Margaret Harlow. And that, my friends, is all I'm going to tell you. But <laughs> will we find out this connection and what will happen? So it's A Lullaby for Witches by Hester Fox. I need to read her stuff. I've heard such good things about her. So I've been talking to Shannon a lot about gothics and I did a lot of research for this episode because I really wanted to find things that felt, I wanted something that felt like a, a classic gothic romance, like something that felt like the spirit of Victoria Holt or um, Madeline Brent or Mary Stewart. Um, I'd say Barbara Michaels, but we're going to talk about her <laughs> later on, I hope. <laughs> yeah. um, but, you know, I wanted something that kind of like embodied that the feeling of those early gothics, because that's what I grew up reading and I, I fell in love with. But I, to be honest, I wanted um, a hero that had a bit more um, depth than some of the early novels. And I also wanted some sexy times. So after a bunch of research, I decided to talk about um, Dark Prince and it's Dark Gothic number three, but Natalia is, uh, can be read as a standalone and it's by Eve Silver. And this book was just exactly, it, it hit all, most every note that I wanted it to hit for me in terms of what I look for in a gothic. This book is about Jane. She is the daughter of an innkeeper um, on the Cornish coast. And Jane oh, lives. Cornwall. Yes, yes. So already, you know, it's going to be smugglers and pirates. Ahoy. And so <laughs> so Jane is um, 
a young woman who knows that her entire life is going to be living in her father's inn and um, assisting him with caring for the patrons that come into the doors. Because when Jane was, when Jane was younger, something happened to her that caused a pretty significant injury to her leg that has resulted in muscle damage and um, um, some difficulty with, with walking and maintaining balance and staying on her feet at times. And so of course the men of the village, while they all really like Jane, they don't see her as a viable partner because it's the early part of the 19th century. And why would you want someone with a disability as your partner? I no, asked, why would you No. Uh. Oh, garbage. Keep them just, you know, in the role of the help. Anyway. <laughs> so Jane is living this life where she feels mostly content. She's assisting her father. She's caring for him because when her mother died, all she kept saying to Jane while Jane was growing up was watch after your father, watch out for your father, watch after your father. And so Jane is doing her best to respect her mother's memory and to take care of her father who, while he's not always the most loving, he's all she knows. One morning while Jane is visiting her mother's grave, she meets the man that owns the house that I'm blanking on the name. I actually can't pronounce it, but it's across this little um, bridge on this area of land that can only be gotten to at certain times of the day when the tide allows. And she thinks to herself that he is like a prince from a fairy tale and she is quite smitten. That is until they return to the inn together and she realizes her father is planning to sell her to this man to pay off her father's debts. And his wow. name is Mr. Aiden Warwick. We don't know what these debts precisely are, but we know that Aiden Warwick has decided that she will be an indent in indentured servitude to him for seven years to pay off whatever this debt is. Lovely. And Jane is waiting for her father to be all angry on her behalf and to refuse. But very soon she realizes that his arguments are purely for show and that he is planning to sell her off to this man. And Jane decides that this man has to be the devil, not a prince, because why else would he rip her from her home, give her only 10 minutes to pack her bags and off they go in his carriage. So I really like Jane. She's a very intelligent, well-spoken heroine who for about 97% of the book is very um, rational and clear headed and, you know, really has a good grasp on a lot of things. And she just has this kind of gentle intelligence about her that sort of is reminiscent of Jane Eyre, if I'm being honest, the sort of reserved, dignified, intelligent way of looking at things. And as Jane gets to know Aiden, she wonders which is true. The, the, the man that, you know, she thinks he is, which is a, a pirate and a smuggler and perhaps even a murderer. Or, or the devil. Right. Or is it this other side of him that she sees, this man of, of honor and who shows her kindness in odd little ways? You know, what, what is real? 
you know, what, what part does he play in all of the smuggling going on along the coast? What part does he play in the death of the young woman who washed up on the beach at the beginning of the book? What part does he play? Why is he so hellbent on ruining her father and ruining her father's life? So what is true? The man that she's beginning to care about or this other sort of dastardly villainous man? So I like this book a lot. It had a lot of very good atmospheric um, descriptions of, of buildings and of the moors and of the sort of desolate landscape around, around the area. Um, I was hoping for more like within his estate um, than we got. They, they did a lot of traveling in the carriage throughout oh. the book to different destinations related to his smuggling. Um, so I, it, in that way, it didn't have the spooky old house vibe that I was hoping for, but it certainly had the, the shadowy man and the, the woman who feels kind of robbed of most of her choices and who does things for, you know, to, to assist others versus like doing things that actually assist herself. Um, but it was just a really lovely book. And what I really appreciated about Eve Silver's writing in this book was how she wrote in sort of the Gothic romance style of days of yore. It was this very sort of British, I don't even know, like it was just delightful. It was wonderful. And, you know, it, the, the characters were fairly well fleshed out, I would say. And just, it, it was a really nice book. I, I like that she has written a whole series of dark gothics that can be read in any order. I'm going to say it one more time. They can be read in any order. They are standalones. They're just part of the dark gothic series because they're all gothic. They do not have anything to do with each other. Um, but if you're looking for something that's kind of like a gothic romance from what you read in your early teens way back um, oh, yeah. in the good old days that just made you feel like you were in these crumbling old estates and, and you know, unfortunately there was no woman running across the moors in a diaphanous gown in this one, sadly, but um, <laughs> oh. I, I was really hoping for the escape during the storm in the diaphanous gown. But you know what? It's okay. Like if you, if you like all the elements of a Gothic, but you want it told in a bit more of a contemporary voice, I highly recommend Dark Prince, Dark Gothic book three by Eve Silver. And if you like this book, you have another five books in this unconnected series of Gothics that you can dive into as well. Book four in this series, Shannon, takes place at a boarding school and is oh. about a serial killer. Um, okay. so that's why yeah you might want to read that one first uh yeah i i need to her name is beth yeah so anyway I, the, these books this book was quite good it was a lot of fun so i had a few contenders for my last book i thought about fingersmith by sarah waters and sylvia moreno garcia's mexican gothic but ultimately i decided to talk about a series that just does not get the attention that I think it deserves. Um, so I'm talking about the first book. This is The Gates of Evangeline, Charlie Cates, book one by Ooh, Hester Young. I yeah. love that book. That's one I actually can talk about with you guys. <laughs> ah, yes. I love this book. I think Natalia also really likes this book. So Charlie Cates is a journalist, but most importantly for 
this part of the story, she is a grieving mother. Um, she lost her child in a very unexpected way, and she just hasn't been able to move on from that. Um, another thing that starts to affect her are these very vivid dreams that are almost like visions of children, and they're, they're children that she doesn't know. And she gets very detailed like, images of like, things that happen to these children, and none of them are, are good. Um, and so she starts to wonder, like, what's, what's happening? You know, why is she having these visions? Does it have something to do with the loss of her own child? You know, she doesn't know. She starts to have visions of this one boy, and he appears to her like, again and again and again and again. And she starts trying to figure out, like, does he have some kind of, like, did he exist in real life? You know, what, like, why is, or did she just, like, make him up? You know, how is this happening? And she ends up discovering a 30-year-old like, cold case of a child who disappeared from a house in Louisiana. Ooh. This house is called Evangeline, or Evangeline, depending how you want to pronounce it. And Charlie decides that she needs to go there. And she thinks that going there and seeing this estate might be able to help her like, understand not only like, what's happening with these visions, but can these visions help her find or help her understand what happened to this boy? So she goes there kind of under false pretenses. She says that she's writing an article um, about this family, but of course she doesn't say that it's about the, the missing child because she figures like no one would want to talk to her about that. It's been 30 years. They probably don't want to have this uncovered. So she spends time in Evangeline and starts digging into this family's past and learning all kinds of things, not only about the family and the case of the missing child, but about the origins of these visions that she's having. She meets a man who becomes kind of her ally and eventually um, her love interest in the series. And he also seems to have some knowledge um, about this case that she's investigating. I was a little worried about this at first. Um, I was worried just for transparency's sake that these were like the ghosts of children appearing to her and I, I couldn't handle that, we know that. Um, it didn't turn out to be quite, quite that. So I was able to kind of fall into this um, with relative ease once I realized that like ghosts were not you know, popping out at me and making me irritable. There are three books in this series. I wish there were more. I love them all so much. And I hope that people will pick up this one and continue the series as well, because it is fantastic. This is The Gates of Evangeline, Charlie Cates, book one by Hester Young. You told me to read this like in 2019. I did. I, I need to. It's so good. You would really like it because it is very like creepy and atmospheric. Um, the third book is set in Hawaii and she talks like you get to kind of learn about some of the like the culture and the mythology um, of, of Hawaii. 
I just, I really, I really like her. I wish that she would write more, but I think the last one came out in 2019 and we haven't, uh, haven't seen any more. My last book is the Sea King's Daughter by Barbara Michaels. <gasps> ah, yes. Oh, yay. And I love this book. This was one of the first Barbara Michaels I'd ever read. Um, so I was quite fascinated to by this book. Enough so that I wanted to change my name to Ariadne for a long time. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, this one is about Sandy Fredericks, and she visits the island of the Greek island of Thera. And she, once she gets there, because she's there with her father who wants to go deep sea fishing to find lost treasures, old lost treasures like from pirates pirates and other things. So she, um, she tends to have dreams on this island and they're very vivid dreams, dreams about who, who she thinks she might. Well, she doesn't think, um, she doesn't know why she has these dreams and is confused by them. So eventually she does get answers there are people in this book who want to use her for um how do you say this nefarious reasons yes nefarious (laughs) reasons is a good one um and so she has to once she realizes what what they want from her i don't think um Sandy is the same person she started out with in the beginning of the book. This is um, The Sea King's Daughter by Barbara Michaels, which is the pseudonym for Elizabeth Peters. And we all are aware of those. (laughs) Amelia Crocodile on the Sandbank. I love (laughs) Barbara Michaels. I started reading her um, some point during high school, but the first one I ever read by her was Wait for What Will Come. We found it at the local library of all places on tape. And I just, I mean, for years, I read everything she wrote, everything, just everything. And I, I loved, you know, how she could just really suck you into these stories and just make you feel so spooky. Um, and, and they were so different from her Elizabeth Peters. Like how many people yes. do you know that can write so differently? So this concludes a summary gothic episode <laughs> here on Book Bistro. Thank you to Brooke, Stacy, and Georgina for participating tonight. Thanks as always goes out to Christine for all of her editing. And of course, we thank all of you so much for joining us each week as we talk about great books. If you would like to leave us a rating or a review, you can do that on Apple Podcasts or any other platform that you use to access the show. Not only does it tell us what you think, but it also helps other people find us when they're looking for book-related podcasts. Um, It kind of advances us in the Google algorithm. 
So I will be back next Tuesday morning with an author interview and, of course, the guide to new releases. And some number of us will be back on Friday with more bookish greatness. Take care, everybody. Thank you.